Welcome to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Patchworks, hosted by me, James Get and Paul Rogers. Each week we bring you interviews with industry thought leaders or the C-suite of tech companies and, and retail e-commerce leaders. We also do um, uh, like talking heads episodes where me and Paul discuss like key strategic areas around e-commerce and that's today's episode is going to be about. In return, all we ask is you tell other people, we'd love you to get more people listening to the podcast for us and if it's your first time, give us a rating, really helps boost the visibility. So we got quite a broad topic today. It's about product data and using like attributes, custom fields, tags, whatever the terminology might be dependent on the platform you're using to improve and enrich product data to drive smarter automation and to help the business achieve um, better capabilities around product catalog management and trading. And we recently talked about fixing a particular issue related to product data um, with the guys at Swift. So that was in, in stock, but not online using smarter automation. And this links in really nice to that. We're getting deeper into product data itself and looking at how e-commerce teams work, some of the challenges they face with technology, the things that they want to do, and sharing some insights from what we've seen work well and what we know from working with platforms and other e-com teams and covering things like data trade and also looking at elements like site migrations. So let's take you on our ramble through product data optimization. And should we start at the let's start at the beginning, Paul, um, which is why is source product data often not fully fit for e-commerce? Like what gaps do you typically see retailers and e-commerce teams have and what impact does it have? Yeah, so um, I guess the biggest one that a lot of this started with, and I'm sure you've worked with loads of businesses as well, um, as of we, where basically um, they just have a quite a high proportion of uh, attributes or fields that are just missing for um, like certain groups of products. And I think you see it less with some of the like newer brands where they've kind of started with a small catalogue and grown out and they've kind of always had a certain set process in place but with a lot of the more traditional brands that kind of moved online and direct has historically been a smaller part of the business um yeah we've definitely had a number of clients that have been particularly poor and usually it's the i guess the richer data um and we have one client that i loosely commented on here who are like a massive brand great business amazing product um but they're they're a wholesale business so they're maybe two percent of the like global demand for the product um and all of their resellers have like significantly better product data and i flag it all the time like little things so like compatibility of the product with other products you might store within the product um things like that like there's none of that on the direct side but all of the kind of resellers have you know seen enough rationale to you know actually invest in this stuff um and I personally think it has a big impact on their direct selling. Um, and then we've got another client who's pretty similar um, or was pretty similar. It's a luxury watch brand. Um, and they probably had like 25, 30% like completeness within the product. And the impact on the customer experience, which we'll come on to, was massive. Um, and I think they're the perfect example of some of the stuff mm-hmm. we're going to talk about, which is like, why is it important? Yeah. I think that's really nice. And uh, do you know what, what I find really interesting is still there are enough e-commerce teams that don't have a standardized um, checklist of what the minimum eligibility criteria are for, for products. Of it, it can't go live without A, B, C, D, E, F and having that, that, gate, that stage gate check of, hey, man, we, we fundamentally haven't got the attribute data right. We can't launch this. There, there seems to be, and I know I get it, our trading pressures of get the products live, get the products live. 
it needs strength in a team to push on other people business to say we only get it live when it's fit for trading um and that takes some subtle um manipulation of personalities one thing that's always surprised me is that we obviously talk a lot about like like what's happening within the platform space and like where certain platforms are strong or like are investing etc and i'm really surprised that because you look at like all the advancement around things like personalization content management like campaign management all of that kind of stuff and it, i'm really surprised that one of the bigger platforms has never created like differentiation around catalog so some of the like obvious functionality you might expect in a pim like building that natively and then i think that would then maybe drive the market to start doing more of that but yeah i'm surprised that there hasn't been platforms that have like you know had some of those validation layers in place like sort of the processes around like reporting back on like completeness and all of that kind of stuff so you basically just pitched a new feature in Holdsman to some of the leading platforms to challenge them to get this done right um what 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 should we tackle next then? Where are we going next on this discussion? Yeah, so I think the one that we've got next that I added in here uh, as a bit of a random extra to your organised list of questions um, was like who should be responsible and how should a business approach it. So I talk about the scenario where you've got a business of like thirty percent completeness in their e-commerce catalog. Like, who do you think should be responsible and how do you think that should be approached? Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to do the usual uh, consultant claps, and it depends because it depends on the size of the business and the size yeah. of the team. So I've got a client at the moment, really small. They've literally got one person leading it and an admin person on the e-comm side. That is it. Now, I will split that out because I'm currently doing a process where we've got to sort out the product data and, and that process of getting products on to the right level of completeness. So number one, the person who has commercial responsibility for the channel needs to have ownership of the process for defining what the standard is. If you don't have a standard, you can't complete new product data against it. So that that's you shouldn't give that to a junior person, expect them to, to have that knowledge and experience, work with them to support them, to understand what's required and why, and show them what good looks like from other sides. But you as the as the commercial owner for that need to set that standard. So in this client, they are effectively the e-com director role. Then the, the web assistant, web exec, whatever the, the job title might be, then takes ownership for delivering against it when new products land. And they basically should have ownership of the relationship with the people who are providing the source data, which sometimes is external suppliers. Sometimes it's internal buyers. Um, so it really varies from business to business, depending on how, how large and structured the teams are. Um, but yeah, I like to split it out between like, own the process and the standards and own the execution. That's mainly because at the moment I'm working with a lot more SMEs and not massive enterprise um, clients at the moment. Um, and in terms, of, I know you said about do you bring in a PIM, and I've, this I find an interesting one because often a PIM is put in to fix the wrong issue, and you don't need the PIM. You just need to set up your product data and your structure, and not spend on a license you don't need. I'm not denigrating PIMs because I I'm a big proponent of them in the right use cases where you have like you know complex, more complexity around product channel um sorry different channels different product datas different data feeds when you've got translations when you've got localization when you might have excel or third parties who need to source and access product assets and you need that controlled instruction so there are use cases where a pim is useful but half the time let's face it mate it's because there aren't enough quality controls um so where, where's your head what are you saying yeah. with your your client base 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what you just said. Um, one thing I, I guess we should add, just for anyone that doesn't know what PIM is, um, essentially it's product information management system, and it's like a master for product information. And as James said, probably I've seen maybe 90% of the people of our clients that use a PIM use it because of process limitations more so than you know needing to have the functionality within the PIM or needing to like maybe uh, pass data around etc um i think going back to that watch example so one thing and i think you're much better at you know driving change and process and being organized generally than i am but i think with that watch example we're just from like a practical standpoint so it was quite interesting because it was a bit of a legacy issue because you've essentially got stores wholesale um and then online and they're very very um separate and they've got very separate teams. And I would say that Direct was very heavily impacted by this lack of data. And even things like the way they were structuring the navigation was like super, it was just wrong. Like everything was like um, catering for existing customers. And a lot of it was because of the lack of product data. So in the end, what we did, so it took ages and they hired a head of e-com, which is the first senior hire in the e-com team. Um, that person advocated the need to do this. Um, and then they ba- she basically got buy-in from like uh, the owners of the channels. And then in the end, exactly as you said, so we built out a sheet and we had a column per attribute. And we started with things like movement and you know strap material, all of that kind of stuff. And then basically uh, they had to work with a couple of other people within the business, sieve through loads of information. Uh, but it wasn't a small catalogue. And then basically, once it was complete, the three senior stakeholders had to then sign it off, and then they reported into the ecom platform and the ERP as well, actually, um, which is quite a big change uh, in how things are working. Um, but basically, once everyone had signed it off and it was complete, and then the process was then in place afterwards with ERP first to get the data in. Um, but I would say that was a disaster. Like, I think I made that sound quite clean, but... It was like major impact, took a long time. It's probably still not complete. Um, but yeah, I think overall, like usually there's a lot of variables that make this really complex and it's more like yeah. analytical or process or having different systems which are like, you know, it's not clear where certain things need to be entered, etc. Patchworks, the world's most modern integration platform. We can connect any key e-commerce system from storefronts to marketplaces and ERPs to fulfillment solutions. This allows retailers and partners alike to simplify their tech stack integration and do away with point-to-point vendor-specific apps. We can automate and streamline the flow of data across your entire e-commerce business. Find out more at wearepatchworks.com. Yeah, I I think the political bit's a really hard one because I've worked with businesses where you have friction between the whoever's sourcing the products, buying teams, merchandises, whatever the, the the team structure is there, and the people um, running the website and trying to sell those products online, and a, a the friction being you know we want better product data. Well, no, that's not our job. But actually, your job is to source the right products that sell. And it's really hard sometimes to flip the conversation to go. Well, your products are not going to sell. You're going to have overstocks, and you're going to have to discount heavily and hit your margins, and not get as good trading figures if you don't get this right. Because we know it. Unless you have such a unique product and with such amazing demand, where you can get away with with not good product data because people just want it, which is rare <laughs> in the competitive markets. 
then you fundamentally you've got to have it because otherwise yeah. people come onto a page look at it and go yeah that doesn't look, the images are wrong or the product data doesn't really give them what they need or somebody's got specific we'll get into this a bit more somebody's got specific need especially around like a like dietary or lifestyle requirements um so let's look yeah. at the impact of partial product data so that we know that you need good information because customers need it to make informed decisions. But let's look at the, the practical implications from trading an e-commerce store for what partial product data has. And the, the areas that I normally focus people on when I'm sat with clients trying to get them to understand why their product data is not fit for purpose is number one is inaccurate search. So looking at a customer's search data, what percentage of sessions are using search? How does conversion rate compare for search to non-search? What types of query are there? What are the matches? How many zero matches are there? How many people are they have reached out? So, I've been able to show them quite quickly some queries where they are not getting their full product matches in there. They're missing products out of those matches, or the relevancy is not right, and what the conversion lost conversion opportunity is. And this normally comes down to structured data like attributes. Then there's poor use of filters. If you don't have the right attribute data structures in place, whichever system you're using, whether you're using tags attribute fields, whatever it might be, so that people can meaningfully refine filters on pages and that filters are relevant to that specific product set and how customers want to search. Um, those are the two areas I typically focus on. Those are the ones I normally see the biggest issues where you might, say if you go through, and I recommend anyone doing this, is where you go through a search journey and you do the the um, comparative and um, browse journey. So I give an example to an online grocer where it was nut-free chocolate was a popular search. So obviously allergy and food is huge. If you went through the online grocer into food cupboard into chocolate and then filtered by um, like the nut-free allergy, you had a totally different number of products and different products um, in those results for search and browse. And some brands were not appearing in the browse journey versus the search. So clearly there is an issue with algorithms, data, driving that visibility. So that's where... That's the, what I normally see. What, what are you seeing around the, the key impact partial product data has on e-com teams? Yeah, so I think those two and probably data feeds are the three like highest impact like consequence. Um, but the big thing I would say is probably more the opportunity as well. So a, a lot more platforms now are allowing for things like rule-based category inclusion, um, a lot more people are using product data to support with automated visual merchandising. Um, maybe it's just the bottom 50% of categories, et cetera. Maybe it's all, or maybe it's just layers, but um, things like that. Um, and then also even things like navigation, like there's a lot of rules that can be put in place within e-com platforms and third parties and that can save huge amounts of time. And actually that mm. product data, that uh, luxury watch retailer, the whole um, goal of it, or the primary goals of it, was to automate like 50% of what people do manually um, because, you know, they had free global websites and they were doing everything manually across three different stores. And I think it's probably like, if you can get this in place, suddenly you can start to look at some of these kind of automations that can like drive a better customer experience and reduce like manual overheads. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the impact's massive. Like, and like you say, there's variables. It depends on different industries that have the circuit. Um, yeah, like I think if you're the worst I've ever seen, and I don't think she'll mind me saying this because the company doesn't exist anymore, but, uh, so Sham and my team used to work for BHS and BHS obviously went into administration and then came back. And when they came back, they had to rebuild the catalog. 
um, and they were on an SAP platform. And essentially, one, it was really difficult for them to actually manage the process. And two, you know, they had a really small team uh, coming back into like an enterprise environment. But I remember when I was more involved with Clayview, trying to get their search working and their catalog didn't have, you know, gender, like color was missing in most cases, like the most basic things. And I remember uh, certain people at HS being really annoyed, being like, we're paying a fortune for Clayview, but it was literally impossible for Clayview to like, Un, like develop context and like, understand the product yeah. um so i think that's probably like the most extreme but i think it like it goes up doesn't it and it influences so many different areas yeah yeah and interesting you know i i had a conversation um relatively recently with a client who had been informed that that um, a couple of search tools were poor quality um clayview was one um probably the other thing uh, i can't remember the other one was mentioned because the search results were inaccurate, but the issue was not the search tool, it was the product catalog. And you know, search provider, you know, pick your search provider, Clayview, Algolia, Search Green, Evolved Scores, it doesn't matter. If you give them crap data, it doesn't matter how intelligent their algorithms are, you can't do anything because you're relying on, on inaccurate data. So it's critical when you're investing in third parties to nail the product data piece first. Complete. Do you know what on that as well? Oh, sorry, go on. You go. No, you go. Um, so one thing I was going to say on that as well is um, I think that so many people start to like berate their search tool without thinking about the potential impacts that uh, data can have on it as well because long description. So a lot of people um, will have like equal weighting on things like title, long description, uh, those two in particular. And then the long description, they'll have either really basic uh, data or they'll have really random inclusions of like other terms um and like stuff like that like, i think if you start to face issues like that you kind of have to work with the vendor because you can't necessarily expect the automation to start weighting things within your data um yeah. so i think that's just an interesting sub point yeah I'm- I'll give you an example of that. Um, I pointed this out on the John Lewis site several years ago. And thankfully, it's been fixed, and I'm not going to be arrogant enough to think it's because of me pointing it out um, publicly. I'm sure that was just part of their ongoing like, optimization improvement because they got a big smart team there. Um, but they had. I was searching um, when when I when um, smartphones first went to dual camera mode, the front and back cameras. You saw a spike in search for dual camera phone. Um, which is, you know, it's not a standardized, no iPhone or Samsung or whatever it might be is going to have dual camera phone in the product title because it focuses on the brand, the model, et cetera. That's attribute data. But because the search was index, was focused on title and description, the the first two results were dual cookers, which is bonkers. But it, yeah. the, the search engine couldn't detect that it was a phone was the primary driver and that dual camera was the attribute that was then next needed. So... Yeah, thankfully, we're getting more intelligent in understanding searching. But if you don't structure your data correctly and you rely on your product title, and you're right, the product description is, for me, I always say, unless uh, I, I personally don't like indexing product descriptions, unless there is a specific technical reason to, because the product description is so technically um, specific to products that it will add value to it. Um, but in, I think one of the things we talked about earlier, which is why do we get some of these issues in the politics? And, and the one thing that I have learned that can work or get buy-in is, is you model on some of the data, right? Especially with search 
journeys, they're easier to put numbers on of how many search queries are in dead ends, what's our conversion rate, if we get better results, what could we potentially get as a, as a conversion sales update. Find that, taking that data back to the people involved in creating and providing source data, whilst not perfect, can open people's eyes and get more positive response than just saying we need better data, but actually giving them numbers. Um, if you give, if you especially get buying teams numbers of you could sell this many more units if you give us better data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that long description point as well, if you do get the product data right, you then don't need to index the long description. Um, so yeah, I think that we could probably talk about that all day. Um, so next question, and I think like we've talked about this brief, or not briefly, even like we talked about this on a few episodes. It's like when you have problems like this, like realistically, the best time to fix it is probably going to be during like a migration or like a big change project. How do you think teams should approach this when they're re-platforming or looking at a migration of some kind? Uh, so number one, it's determined by the platform because each platform has different data structures. I know fundamentally it's, it's the same premise, right? We need product info, but it's going to be determined by what template you're using for your product pages, what product data fields you've got, and how you then use them to achieve what you want from a product data point of view. I think there's an important consideration. So how much are you doing through like product attribute data? How much are you doing through tags that are visible or invisible to the customer? Um, but it, the starting point to get there is the research bit. If you don't know what you need and what the problem is and what customers need, you can't possibly architect the site, right? So which kind of led, I'm kind of answering the next question that we had to give you this answer, which I know you're building because you've got loads of experience doing this and you've got, I think you've got more experience doing this directly within the platform to help people the product data model. But so I, I remember working with Lumiere Equestrian Brand and one of the, the precursors to any of this that I did with them was a UX user journey workshop on how do customers find products? What are their journeys? What are they looking for? What are they searching for? What's in their mind? What questions are they asking? Because the navigation wasn't, I knew the navigation wasn't wasn't aligned with what customers need, but I didn't understand the audience in depth enough to know exactly what what words, what language, what were they looking for in the product. So we went through that process and we identified the fact that people shop not just by products or category, but people shop by event. So whether they are show jumpers or eventers, um, exactly, or they're just people going out on the weekend for a nice ride. Um, and then there are the people who are searching for gifts and that there are different different ways of finding and different needs in the product data. They're, you know, people who are expert show jumpers want the product, the technical product information. They want to know that it's right for their horse. They want to know it's right for them. And there are others who want to, you know, want a cool product for their granddaughter who know they know their granddaughter loves pink or blue or whatever the color might be, and they want to get, therefore they're looking by color, so it's totally different. So we, we did that piece, and that ideation led into the next bit, which was then the research around what people searching for out externally, like Google, et cetera, what sort of keywords or questions and answers stuff, then what are they searching for on the site, all of that intelligence, which we then boiled down to, right, okay, well, where's the current data and what are we missing? What, what attributes, what filters are we going to need to do this? What category navigation are we going to need? Um, you know, how do we pin the collections? What's the interdependencies? What's a fixed collection? What's dynamic? And if it's going to be dynamic, what is the attributes and tags we need off the back of that to drive those dynamic categories and then map it? So that that's normally how I do it. And that then 
if you do that piece right and structure your product data, that then inevitably leads on to much smarter things like search accuracy. So that's that's more. But how about you? How do you how do you tackle? Because I know you've got a pretty good methodology for this as well. I think it's pretty similar to what you just said, but the same really. So I think we would usually like map out what you need the product data for. So a big part of that would be like yeah, like you say, category and collection, um, inclusion, filtering, data feeds. The other one is things like internal exclusions and stuff. So if you want to exclude a product from um search or you've got like a subscription product or a pre-order product or whatever it is like stuff like that so we build out all the potential uh like potential things you need the data for um and then we would start to look at like the optimal category structure or collection structure which might not just be a short-term thing it might be like long-term where they want to get to and the same for filtering and then we would start to build all of the attributes um, and then in an ideal world, so similar to what you just said, like I think you're best rebuilding a catalog to fit in with the new structure. So we would then essentially get a spreadsheet and get a meeting in with as many people as we can that are relevant and start to kind of divide and conquer. And some, some um, data points might be just, uh, you know, mapped straight over, um, but some might need to be created. And that's where you might need to get like merchandise involved or whatever else. Um, but yeah, that's my preference. Then import one by one. Um, yeah, I think that's a good process. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's amazing actually when when you get sick people down and and, and stop because the, the problem with product data normally is that people are so busy day to day with we got to execute campaign, we got to get promotion set up, we got to add new products that you just carry on with your BAU process, even if that process isn't necessarily like properly robust and fit for purpose. It's amazing if you can get people out of that data thinking and give them a mental break and then just challenge and support and, and let them actually acknowledge that people have in a business about how you can make this better is really sh- is, is sharp. Not all businesses have been, sometimes they need help. But a lot of the time, the, the knowledge and ability is there. It's just people haven't had the time to think. So but I think my recommendation on this around the migration is you've got to ensure that in your discovery, process that you have dedicated workshops around this and that the business takes time to prepare for that workshop with an agency or an S, you know, a, a development partner to tackle some of these questions about what product data is needed and why and, and what the current issues and, and do some brainstorming to help make that session more productive. Then at the end of that session with the agency, they will typically push back and go, right, we've got gaps on X, Y, and Z. Now let's, let's fix this as a piece of homework. Um, so we've talked about we we've talked about the tools really uh, that teams can use to find product data gaps. Um, I don't know if you want to call out any specific. I know there's loads of keyword research tools out there. Pick your SEO tool of choice. Pick Google external keyword. Um, you've got various Q and A ones. Um, there's loads of different um, reviews engines if people want to pull out customer insights, etc. So I don't think I don't. Is it is it worth pulling out any specific tools? I feel like it's. The tools people use are going to be very, uh, very dependent on on their business. Yeah, I don't really think there are any. I mean, most of what we've done, because I think the problem you've got with this is often in the average business probably doesn't know they have an issue. So we just recently did an audit for a computer company 
and there was a load of missing data but we only found it by spending like loads of time like analyzing filtering and things and maybe like yeah. you know on some like there were just products missing so i think realistically you've just got to get the data into a spreadsheet and start to like look to identify gaps yeah um and it's like that's the kind of task that will just never come around so yeah. i think that's why a lot of people do it part of the pim implementation yeah. or a replatform project uh but yeah, it's interesting. The only one thing I'd say is like, obviously, AI is getting to a really good point to start to try and help with this. So, uh, Shopify built that into their core. So, like, populating additional like meta fields and things. Um, and I think over time, you'll be able to do a lot more, you know, via Google Sheets or Excel or whatever. Um, and it, and you, it'll be more kind of validation and less manual work. Yeah, you dropped the AI klaxon, but I, I, I agree. Um, do you know, actually, a tool that is really interesting for anyone listening, if you haven't used it before, is TreeJack. Because what you can do, especially around um, navigation and the field to try and look at navigation, whether you can get people quicker into um, product journeys, um, you can set up different navigation miles and you can invite people to come on the site and complete tasks. So it's not like you've developed your site. You do it in their tool. And you invite people in from your customer base to complete tasks like we want you to find X and it does time mapping of task completion, how many people get to complete it and how many people and how quickly. It's a really good way of testing new navigation and menu structures that come out the back of like product data analysis pieces. Um, I do love that one. Then it's like, let's do, we've got two last questions. How can we add richer data to product records? Um, so uh, I know you do a lot of work around custom meta fields and tags. So I'll leave that to you. I'm going to talk about the attribute data, which is similar, but you know, custom meta fields and tags people in Shopify world be used to, attributes where you know, people are used to working, and um, I also like um, custom fields in, in the lights of like a, an Adobe or a Bitcoin. But the most important thing for me around richer data is you've got to start with structured data, name value pairs, like what is the attribute, color, size, dietary requirement, for example, and what are the name value pairs that go with it? Because the most important thing with attribute data is standardization and normalization. You don't want, for example, open ones where anyone can put in a value where they're creating a, a, um, a uploading new product because you get all sorts of um, divergent values. So you, know, you get lowercase, uppercase, and yes, you can normalize through automation, say always capitalize the first letter, but you might have different spellings or, or, or different color names and conventions that a system does not natively know or understand are the same thing. So you've got to be very, very clear on making sure there's a con there's a, a consistent list to choose from, and that really helps drive all consistent filtering. But also that you're using your customer feedback loops to identify where there might be gaps. So a good example I'll give you is I worked with a wine company um, where they there was a lot of demand for vegan wines. This is a good few years back, but there was no attribute data in the product catalog for vegan. So if somebody was searching for vegan wine, it would only find wines if the word vegan was used at any point in the descriptions, which it wasn't always. And simply adding vegan as an attribute instantly makes those products, have got those products straight into the top of searches and therefore selling more effectively. So attribute data is always one of my starting points. But Paul, do you want to um, talk through the, the like custom meta fields and tags and what value or impact you see and how people do it? Yeah, so I think there's a lot to talk about here. As much as before this episode, we were talking about trying to make things a little bit less Shopify because they're taking over the world. Um, but the, so I think Shopify catalog has changed loads. So you were just talking about free, uh, free text 
field and like the risks of that. And a lot of what I was referring to as well earlier, a lot of those issues were actually probably caused by tags because the way that it used to work is like an ad, in a lot of cases, someone would go into the admin and just, you know, type words and that would drive inclusion and filtering, inclusion and inclusion. And that would cause a lot of the issues. And I, again, like I kind of miss the old days of Shopify because, you know, we would come in and we'd build like a really nice little sheet and we would start to maybe pull certain things out of Shopify and, you know, build like um, standardized options and Excel and stuff like that. Um, but now they have improved a lot of this. So 2022, Shopify moved to like supporting Metafield properly and they became like a first party citizen. And then that developed a lot last year. Um, where they're kind of within the UI and everything. So a lot of stuff is now moving to Metafields and there's performance benefits and everything else. And they essentially work as like a standard attribute in another platform. And then last year they introduced Meta Objects, which is essentially allows for dynamic content. And that could be like a cluster of Metafields that build a piece of content that you could use across different collections or PDPs, etc. Um, so that's a really nice addition that actually takes Shopify above a lot of platforms in some ways. Um, but essentially with Shopify now, if you're starting from scratch, you probably wouldn't use too many tags like Shopify support Metafields filtering now. Um, I can't remember whether they do for smart collections or not, um, but all of the data feed providers, all of the third parties are indexing Metafield. Um, so yeah, they have far more. And the other thing is off the back of additions, they've, they're moving towards essentially attribute sets where you'll be able to pre-build sets of meta fields, et cetera. Um, and there's other improvements to product data around variants, et cetera. So it's, um, yeah, Shopify are definitely getting a lot more in line with like a, an Adobe or a Salesforce on that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And that's so important because I speak to a lot of uh, businesses and it's not just, it's not system limitations, obviously people often there's people not understanding how they can do things in a more automated way where people are managing manual categories for basic things like, you know, new in or bestseller, whatever it might be. And, and, and things where actually a lot of it can be, um, uh, orchestrated through the system and you, and some of it can be done through smarter tagging. So there's such an opportunity with a lot of businesses to just take away manual process that isn't needed and focus on more value add merchandise. Um, yeah, that's also a really nice case. Sorry, I've um, I've spoken over you. I think there's a slight delay with Riverside, actually. Um, but I was just going to say, it's also a really cool use case for Flow now that they can now you can do time-based rules um, for things like new in. And I've seen some brands do like new in this week, mm. new in this month, etc. They've used um, previously tags with um, uh, rules for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and and also the ability to to do it based on like um, dynamic around sale, um, as well. So specific sale categories, you you could have like you could define a a like hot deals. I'm working with a client on this about this premise of hot deals, which is um, products that have over fifty percent discount. So that is a separate dynamic category to your main sale category, and that is merchandise and promoted um, differently. Um, let's finish up with the operational side. Because I know part of this conversation that we're having today came out of a discussion we were having with 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 Luke um, Luke Hodgson, who um, who uh, some of you listening will know well, um, uh, and we were talking about our product piece and and how like yeah, e-commerce teams need to take it more seriously. 
And often the operational side is where people don't think about where better product data tagging can drive in, in, in improvement. So let's go through that. A, a couple of examples that I've seen, and I guess this is dependent on what tools you're using, how strong your order management capabilities are to automate this based on um, information in an order file versus information that's missing. So a good example is um, routing SKUs to specific carriers based on a particular tag in that SKU. Um, seeing this done where people have products that can't be shipped to certain destinations or they have to be shipped by a specific um, uh, courier because um, a good example would be two-person delivery where only uh, one courier is able to do that and therefore the routing's got to happen based on the um, flag in the order for that item versus other items that can go out on standardized um, couriers. And even a client of mine is now doing it for express shipping when when an express shipping flag is in it, I know this is separate to the product data, but related, that that is then recognised as a specific tag by the WMS, and it changes where those orders are pushed for pick and pack point of view to different teams. So there's, I think there's some really really smart opportunities around order management. Um, Paul, I don't know what what else you're thinking in terms of operational areas where better product data can help. Yeah, I think um, I don't think this is a something that a lot of our clients do, or that is super simple with many third parties. But I think like our average client is trying to do a lot more around customer data at the moment and trying to pass more behavioural data into their CRM and you know try to move towards accounts and you know collect more first party data as part of that. And I think if you are tying like product and category affinity to a customer. Um, you can then, you could feasibly then use the attribute data to like build out better uh, relationships with other products and things like that. Um, but that being said, like I said, I don't think many people that are sophisticated around that. And I also think that a lot of that will be done by AI. Sorry to mention that again um, over time. But yeah, beyond that, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I can't think of too many examples really. I mean, obviously, you've got all the, uh, use cases if you get this right in e-time and you don't have a PIM or you don't have any URLs obviously the data could support other channels as well such as retail or catalog or whatever yeah. else but um, yeah can't pick it too much beyond that yeah it's into, I find it interesting that people that in e-commerce people don't sit down with the ops people to talk about how this could actually benefit operational processes and I, I know it's not top priority for, for most e-commerce teams when thinking about product catalog optimization because they're thinking about front-end trading, marketing channels, et cetera. But if you can get operational efficiency as well by better data and, and make the ops people know about the data structuring and tagging that you are able to do um, to avoid... Because if you can if you can append certain um, uh, assets, uh, attributes to particular products that can be passed in an order file, to avoid somebody having to do any custom flows in back office systems where typically it's more complicated. That's a massive, massive win. Um, I know somebody did it around fragile goods because they they had a manual warehouse. It wasn't fully automated using like a, a modern WMS. And they basically manually printed off pick sheets and then allocated. So they then had to go through each order to work out what had a fragile good because that had to go to a specific packing station. Um, well, I, actually, the ability to it to have a tag flagged on the order so they look through it, uh, a sheet or they can um, uh, print off only ones with that particular tag just made life so much easier. It was just quicker to go, right, here you go, those are the orders over to the fragile station. So there's sometimes um, even little tweaks can, can have a benefit to your operational stuff. 
Um, that feels like we've covered quite a lot. Um, is there anything obvious you think we're missing today? I don't think so. I think the only thing is we could probably do a follow-up, maybe not quite full episodes, but ordering customer as well, like similar principles around like how you can kind of enrich data to maybe be uh, benefit other areas. But I think we covered loads personally. Yeah, so we're going to stop rambling now. We hope you found that useful. Um, do do hit us up on LinkedIn and let us know what you know what what are your tips and what have you found worked well for for um, improving product data. How are you using product data smartly to automate things either on the on the website or through backend ops? Uh, we always like to hear really cool examples of people doing things smartly with data. Um, and do keep uh, listening because next week we'll drop another episode. And if it was your first time listening, don't forget to give us that rating before you go. Thanks very much, everyone. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.